running out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hankson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting our public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My special guest this week is Representative Jamal Bowman, who was elected to Congress in November 2020, a former New York City middle school principal who now represents District 16, which covers part of the Bronx and Westchester. We'll ask him how his first 16 months as a congressman have gone and what his plans are for the future. But first, some local news. In the New York Post today, it was revealed that the personal student information of as many as 2 million past and current students throughout the state may have been revealed by the Illuminate breach, including their names, test scores, grades, economic and disability status. The state and the city have failed to sufficiently enforce our student privacy law, which was passed in 2014 to protect against these sorts of breaches and must clean up their act. There were red flags in the DOE's contract with Illuminate that should have been apparent that they weren't sufficiently protecting our children's data, and the data held by them should have been minimized and immediately deleted when no longer necessary, which obviously didn't happen in this case since many of the students whose information breached had long graduated from high school. I gave a presentation at the Network for Public Education conference last weekend on the need for much stronger protection of student privacy, along with Doug Levin, a national expert on student breaches, who has appeared on this podcast and show. I will put a link to the video and the PowerPoints, which we presented last weekend, on the WBAI website and the podcast site. It was also announced that next week, Mayor Adams will go to Albany to push for continued unilateral mayoral control with no changes, which essentially means no real checks and balances and no power for parents and communities. If you want to weigh in, you should be contacting your legislators this week to tell them that you need changes. I'll put links to my testimony on this issue and what we're proposing as well. It's pretty clear that 20 years of mayoral control have proven that this system does not work and does not serve kids well. One evidence of this fact is how that even as class size has declined sharply this year due due to enrollment decline, the mayor's plans to cut budgets to schools of $375 million, which will reverse that progress and cause class sizes to sharply increase once again, with likely the sharpest increases since the Great Recession. There is no excuse for this as the city is receiving more than $7 billion in additional federal and state aid to help our kids recover from the disruptions due to COVID, and the state funds are recurring at $1.3 billion a year as a result of the CFB lawsuit in which our excessive class sizes were a central issue in the case. I'll be giving a presentation on these proposed budget cuts and their likely impact on class size on Monday, May 23rd um, to CEC members and other parents. I'll put the link to that sign in in the podcast link and on WBAI. And finally, please save the date on June 4th from 4 to 6 p.m. Class Size Matters and Kids Pack will be holding a parent action conference with lots of workshops on various issues and elected officials will talk about their plans for their schools. But now I'd like to introduce Representative Jamal Bowman, who was elected to Congress in November 2020. 
Jamal is a former New York City middle school principal who represents District 16, which covers large parts of the Bronx and Westchester. Those of us involved in education activism have known Jamal for, lead, for years as a progressive leader on these so many education issues. We had Jamal on this show previously in September 2020 after he won his primary, but not since. He's an extraordinarily busy man, and we're thrilled he made the time to be here today. Welcome to Talk Out of School, Jamal. Hey, Lainey, how you doing? Good to be here. Good to see you. I'm doing good. It was great to see you at the NPE conference, and I'm so happy you're with us today. I have so many questions to ask you, so I want to get to my questions. <laughs> Let's get right to it. Let's get to it. Yeah. So as I said, we last spoke to you in September 2020 before you got to Congress. What has it been like to be a congressman, and what surprised you about the job, if any? Um, it's been awesome. Uh, it's been humbling. It's been a real privilege and it's been really exciting. You know, now I get to work with not just one school, but many schools, not just one group of parents, but many parents. And I get to work on so many issues that intersect with education, like housing and healthcare and jobs and, and, you know, violence reduction and all that stuff. So it's been really, really great. Um, what's been surprising has been, how little we center education in congressional conversations, how it's not at the top of the agenda as much as it should be. You know, we talk about education often, often in the context of post-secondary opportunities, right? Like higher ed, um, job placement, job training, HBCUs, minority service institutions, et cetera, which is good, but we rarely, if ever, talk about K-12. And that's been really surprising how even the Ed and Labor Committee doesn't center K-12 education. And, you know, as you know, Lainey, you know, about 20-something years ago with No Child Left Behind, we pretty much gave the public education debate to, you know, the the charter market-based, you know, anti-union lobby, and they've been driving the narrative for, for, for quite some time until we began to push back with, you know, class size matters, the opt out movement and others. So part of my job in Congress is to make sure I engage my colleagues on the issue of K-12 public education, what's happening, what isn't happening and how we can do more. So uh, it's been great, but very su- surprising at, at how little people really understand the K-12 space. That's interesting. Um, were you there during the insurrection, and what were your experiences at that at that time? Yeah, so I was I was not in the Capitol. I was in my office, which was like right across the street. So thankfully, they didn't like pivot, you know, forty five degrees and come to our direction. Um, it was it was like it was numbing. Like I was so shocked, I was numb. I was in my office, and we have a television. We had a television on to CNN. And it was almost like I couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, But then, and I was hoping that none of my colleagues were like going to get hurt or killed because these people were were out for blood. Um, And immediately I thought like, how were they able to breach the U.S. Capitol? I mean, this is the U.S. Capitol. You're talking about the center of imperial hegemonic military power. How were they able to breach the Capitol? Um, but I was okay, thank God. But but right after that, and even now, um, you know the the how white nationalists are galvanizing um, their their base around the big lie and 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 critical race theory and other areas. It, it's it's very very scary, which is why like we have to remain engaged. I need I needed personal security um, for several weeks after that. 
uh, because, you know, there were threats on not just my life, but on the lives of many members of Congress. Did you immediately call your wife to tell her that you were okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I called called my wife, texted my wife, told her I was good, um, and then had a flood of text messages coming in. I mean, this is when my mom was still alive, so I had to call her and contact her, my sisters, you know, family. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. It's still like, you know, I'm going to have to get, the further away you get from it, the more time you have to reflect on what the heck actually happened. Um, so I'm, I'm still kind of in that space. But but the other thing is, you know, you don't really have time because like you still got to do your job as a member. You still got to. So that night we still had to go back and, and vote to certify the election results. So it's like clean up the mess. Let's come back in. Let's certify these results tonight. Because who knows what would have happened the next day if we if we don't if we didn't get our job done. Yeah, it was completely surreal. I think that everybody who was watching on TV sort of understood why it was happening, but still at the same time couldn't believe that it was happening, you know, in our nation's capital. So um, you've quickly gained a lot of prominence, both in the media, but also in Congress. Uh, Almost immediately, you were named the vice chair of the House Education Labor Committee. Do you know if that's unusual that you quickly rose to the top in this way? And did they give you this because of your experience as a as a as a school principal? Yeah. yeah. So um, positions like vice chair are are usually um, allocated to people who have five years or less experience in Congress. It gives uh, newer members the chance to you know obtain a leadership position and understand how that works. So um, it wasn't given. It was something I had to run for. So I um, shortly after being elected, I started contacting my colleagues on Ed and Labor to, you know, inform them that I was interested in running for this. And here's why. And, you know, gave my my spiel. And when it came time for uh, for the 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 election, if you will, uh, no one else ran against me. So that 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 was pretty cool. So. When they they said Jamal Bowman is running, anyone else running? No one else stood up, so that was great. And I think that was because of my experience, you know, my experience in in, in education for twenty years and middle school principal and all that. Um, so I think that's how that happened. I'm also chair of the and your, you and your husband know. Going to get chair. to that. We're going to yep, get yep. to that. Yeah, I'm yeah. chair of another committee as well. So yeah, it's been. Yeah. That, I think that's unusual uh, to have a freshman chair a committee, even a subcommittee. Even two subcommittees. That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, you're also the chair of the subcommittee on energy within the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Yes. And you've combined your interest in, I think, the two most important issues of our time and certainly my top priorities for Congress, um, climate change and public education. Um, yeah. And one, and you recently um, did, did propose and submit a bill called the Green New Deal for Public Schools, which combines both those issues. Can you explain what what that includes? Yeah, so first of all, the Science, Space, and and Tech Committee is like an unsung committee. You know, it's not one of those, it's not one of the big ones, like like Ways and Means or Appropriations or Energy and Commerce, or one of the sexier ones like Judiciary or Oversight. You know, usually when you see the back and forth, or, or you know, when you, you see C-SPAN back and forth between witness and, and, and member, that's like oversight. It's when we call somebody in to really read them the riot act about something they're doing in their in their in their business. But science, space, and tech, 
one, I, 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 I'm just fascinated by it. So I, I have a, a interest and in, in fascination in it. But it's also like the research and development arm of where we need to go in terms of renewable energy. So that's the R&D. That's, that's the science. That's the research. And that's where we call for the investment. So chairing, you know, being on that committee was great, is great. And chairing the energy subcommittee gives me a bird's eye view to talk about like semiconductors and fusion and supercomputers um, and, and, and energy storage and things that, you know, my community doesn't think as much about, but it gives me a chance to kind of bring them into that. And the Green New Deal for Public Schools is something we were working on even, even prior to winning the primary um, in partnership with uh, professors from University of Pennsylvania um, who have been di- doing incredible research around the area of renewable energy, and particularly as it relates to historically marginalized communities. So in partnership with them, um, we uh, we began working on this bill, the Green New Deal for Public Schools, and that it seeks to invest $1.43 trillion in Title I public schools over the next 10 years. It will move every uh, public school, uh, every Title I public school away from fossil fuels into renewable energy space. That's solar, wind, geothermal, that's retrofits and all of the above. But it also quadruples the amount of investing in Title I for, for public schools, uh, doubles the amount of investment, or excuse me, uh, uh, satisfy our 40% requirement for IDEA, which the feds haven't done. Um, and it also that's creates- for just, um, just for our audience to yeah. know, that's, that's special services for kids Correct. with special needs. So, so special education has been underfunded forever, um, and the federal government has a 40% financial responsibility to fund um, special education, and the federal government has never met that requirement. I think we're at 14% now. Um, so it, it does that, but it also creates a a learning ecosystem in alignment with the challenges of uh, 21st century economy and climate change. So it makes sure the curriculum aligns to, you know, what kids need to learn so when they graduate, they can help tackle the issues of climate change. And it creates a pipeline of teachers, teachers' assistants, counselors, construction workers, and the like, so that they can work within the school system of a particular community uh, while developing developing the surrounding area. So it seeks to do all the things that we know need to be done with regard to climate, but it combines it with the things we need to do we need to do regarding education. So uh, it's it's been really well received. We have well over almost seventy co sponsors. Uh, and we're going to make a real hard push between now and the end of the year to hopefully get it passed. So uh, many of us were disappointed that schools were dropped out of the infrastructure bill almost immediately. And I still don't understand why that happened with very little attention by the media, very little protest. Um, I think very little organization among uh, many education advocates and even the unions. And the Build Back Better bill, as you know, has been stymied in the Senate, though it passed in the House. But your bill would accomplish some of the same goals, I think. Is that right? Um, we were, you know, more aware than ever uh, with COVID how overcrowded many of our schools have been here in New York City and in the Bronx. Um, even those parents who wanted to send their kids back full time could only send their kids back half time in many schools because of the overcrowding. So um, would your Green New Deal bill also tackle the problem of a school overcrowding? 
So yes, absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. It also lowers class size. And when you say schools were taken out of the infrastructure bill, housing was also taken out of the infrastructure bill, which is crazy because both are infrastructure. I um, think there was money for NYCHA though, right? No, that was no taken money out. For NYCHA? Oh, it, no, the NYCHA money was in Build Back Better. Um, and that was part of our fight. That's why we were trying to pass both bills together because BIF didn't go far enough in terms of infrastructure and it didn't even capture all of infrastructure. So yes, the Green New Deal does that as well. It, it deals with the issue of class size, which is another issue that isn't talked about enough. You know, the other day I just, I visited the Dr. Clark Academy in Dobbs Ferry, New York, and it's a school designed to serve children with special needs. And it's an impeccable campus. Um, they have an eight to one student to teacher ratio. Every class had no more than eight students, a teacher and a teacher assistant, had beautiful lighting, they had a landscaping program, art program, music program, and the kids could breathe. And, and, and people don't understand when you have 25, 30, 35 kids in a school, kids can't even breathe in, in the classroom. They can't even think clearly. And the other thing with this is, in wealthier school communities, you have low, you have less kids in the classroom, mm-hmm. and the teachers get paid more, and the principals get paid more, and the superintendents get paid more. There are superintendents in my district and near my district, Laney, that make four hundred thousand dollars a year. Some make seven hundred thousand dollars a year, and they serve as many kids as as are located in one high school in New York City. In that high school, in that high school, the teachers and the principals, superintendents don't make anywhere near that amount of money. So it's inequity, it's inequality, and it's why certain groups of kids continue to, you know, be neglected and marginalized and underperform within the spaces that we've created for. Yeah, and 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 what's really, I mean, I could go on about this issue forever, as you know, but what's what's puzzling to me is we know for sure that smaller classes lead to better results for all kids, but especially those kids who need help the most. And the research is crystal clear on this, that this is a a key driver of equity for our kids of color, kids with special needs and English language learners. And yet, and we claim to be searching for solutions to narrow that opportunity gap. And we have one right here that's proven to work. And yet, the inequities continue into the 21st century. And, and, it's, it, and it's more of a crisis now than before COVID because right. many people have left the profession. Many are not interested in coming into the profession. So class, and but, but we still have kids. So class sizes are only going to grow where we don't have the physical or human infrastructure to really give kids the intimate one-on-one small group learning that they can receive in a smaller class setting. And which the children of the elite automatically get. Automatically. And the children of most of the people in Congress automatically get. That's right. And yet these, you know, the, the same people who argue against class size reduction for the, for the average kid make sure they get it for their own kids. That's right. So um, I, in the intro, I spoke briefly about the Illuminate breach which um, has affected nearly a million students in New York City, past and current students. And now um, it turns out another million throughout the state of New York, perhaps even in Westchester, parts of Westchester. Um, As you know, the other issue that I care passionately about and that I've been involved in for a long time is student privacy. 
a bill that relates to this issue was passed by the House recently called the College Transparency Act. It was passed without any public hearings, without any public input, and it was slipped into a larger bill which had nothing to do with it called the America Competes Act, which was supposed to uh, deal with American economic competitiveness with China. It passed the House and is now going to conference with the Senate. Can you explain what the CTA would do, what it would authorize the federal government to do, and why, thankfully, you did vote against it? Yes. So thank you, first of all, for bringing this to my attention. But this is one of those things and, and a clear example of one of the problems in Congress. We consistently lump bills together into these large omnibus packages And you have to decide, okay, do I vote for this super large package where, yes, a lot of it will benefit my district and my constituents in the country, whereas this other part of it will allow us to track students throughout their careers after they graduate from post-secondary institutions. That idea of tracking has been weaponized against vulnerable communities throughout U.S. history and throughout Western civilization. And with technology, where it is now constantly evolving, evolving with surveillance, with data collection and how data collection is being monetized, is pretty much using children um, and young, young adults as pawns to continue to serve a, a hyper-capitalist system that benefits the wealthy and large corporations. So it's a system of tracking, to put, to put bluntly. And, and we need to ask ourselves, and the American people need to ask themselves, do I want my child tracked over the course of their lives after they graduate from post-secondary um, um, institutions? Right. And the answer is no. The, for this would authorize the federal government for the first time to collect the personal student data of every student ever enrolled in higher ed institution mm-hmm. and match that data with data from the Social Security Administration, the Census Bureau, the Department of Defense. The data would include things like a student's criminal record and their disabilities and their economic status and track them throughout their entire lives. And as we've learned, the federal government is not a trustworthy steward of this kind of information. It was just revealed last week that students who enter their personal information into the FAFSA webpage on the U.S. Department of uh, website is sending that data directly to Facebook without their knowledge, even for kids who have no Facebook uh, uh, profile or page. So I, I, we think this is very risky. We're, we're hoping and expect that, that in conference committee, if this comes up as an issue, that you will be our champion and do what yeah. you can to make sure it's not in the final bill. We did get good news. It was not included in the motion to instruct vote in the Senate last week. So we're hopeful that the Senate is losing some of its support, but we'll have more information about that bill and how you can give input to your senators and and congressmen in the resources section of the podcast. And So so real quick, so it's the ultimate big brother over the course of your entire life and every aspect of your life. But the second thing is, Lainey, not enough people are talking about this. Like not enough people are talking about student privacy. Not enough people understand what it is. 
Um, so it's really important, Lainey, for you to continue to educate, for me to continue to educate. Please share talking points and one pages and resources with me so I can use my office to get the information out. We need as many people leaning to this as possible because you're right. It's, at, it's in conference committee. I happen to be one of two freshmen on this conference committee, which I'm very proud of. Um, and, and I'm going to fight to remove it from from the bill. But what helps us to fight on the inside is people fighting on the outside and pushing. We're doing, we're doing what we what we can. We we yep. had an op-ed in the Washington Post, but we are going to be working on a toolkit, um, which we will share with you and your staff on all, countering all the arguments that the proponents make because yes. none of them hold water at all. There is no reason for this. There's no excuse for it. There's no purpose for it. And it creates incredible risk for students throughout their lives. The data, they cannot, no student can ever opt out of the data collection and no student or or adult can ever ask to have their data deleted. So the federal government will essentially hold on to it forever. And we've seen that when that happens, we've seen that with the Illuminate breach, that when people hold on to data forever, it does breach. It needs, it needs to be deleted. It, it needs not to be collected in the first place. So thank you for your, your leadership on this. It's, it is truly appreciated. Have you heard yet when the conference committee is start, it will start to deliberate? Uh, no, but it's, it's going to be, I've heard a, a while, not a while, but not weeks, but maybe a couple months. Um, and, but, but there, we are taking steps to get to the point of starting. So, you know, that's a good thing. What I have heard though, from more senior members we rarely go to conference, um, and many senior members have never been on conference. So it's like new ter- newer territory. Really? For, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting, but this is obviously an important bill for a variety of reasons. One other thing about the Competes Act, uh, we on, on science and tech really push for equity in STEM and K-12 workforce development as part of it, which is one of the reasons why we were chosen to be on, on conference. So real exciting. Let's see what happens. Let's see. Yeah. Like, please keep in touch and let me know what the latest is. And we will help work, you know, work with you every way we possibly can, because this is a real, really terrible idea. Um, One of the things that we've talked about briefly before, but I'd really like to talk about it on the show is um, the fear that I have and many progressive voters have that independent voters, especially the suburban parents, um, may stay home in the midterms or vote Republican because they're still upset about the school closures during the pandemic. And I don't want to get into that whole debate over school closures. I have friends on both sides of that debate, and I see that um, different people have different um, um, assessments of risk and different communities have different actual risks in terms of the, you know, the risks to Minority populations in terms of the numbers who got seriously ill and died is much larger than the, than the number and percentage of, of, of people in some of our more wealthy suburban communities. So I just think that this is a debate that is very unfortunate and I don't want to get into right now, but it is true for whatever reason that a lot of those independent voters and parents, suburban parents who once tended to vote Democratic, especially on education issues, are now leaning Republican or may stay home. And it was apparently one of the main forces bet- uh, uh, with the win in Virginia for the GOP governor, Glenn Youngkin. I hear about this all the time from some of my suburban friends, some of whom you know, like Jeanette Deuterman, 
um, who really have the pulse on their communities that, that, that they think this, that uh, Democrats may get, get really squelched in, um, during the midterms, in part because of this issue of our schools. Um, I'm also concerned that the Democratic Party is not really responding to this risk as strongly as they could have. They don't seem to have a strong positive education agenda, the National Party, and they seem to always be on the defensive right now. Are you concerned about this at all? And what do you think the Democrats should do to attract these independent voters back to the fold? So, yes, very concerned. Uh, Very, 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 very concerned. Um, It's not just independent voters. Like you said, it's Democratic voters as well. um, And those who are registered as Democrats, um, very concerned. Um, If we use traditional methods of engagement as a party, we will lose. We need boots on the ground, direct voter contact in every corner and community of this country to ensure that people remain engaged and come out during the midterms. We also need to get better at our macro communication strategies that we use in our advertisement on, on, on social media, radio, mainstream media, etc. What I'm worried about is the, the establishment norms of engagement that may have worked for a different time or a different demographic, but do not work now. The Democratic Party has some of the most incredible, um, uh, incredibly articulate, incredibly brilliant, transformative leaders than they've had in a long time. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, just to name a few. And we are not harnessing the networks that they have built and how they have made the party stronger through just their brilliant forms of leadership. We have to, we have to learn from them and implement what they've implemented. In addition to that, I was told to stand down at the very beginning of the critical race theory debate. And my colleagues were told to stand down from Congress because, you know, Congress doesn't, doesn't have a say in curriculum. We don't deal with that. Republicans are wrong anyway. On and on and on and on. We didn't engage what happened. We lost gubernatorial in Virginia and almost lost in New Jersey. So we have to engage. We have to engage differently. And if we engage differently and authentically and honestly and lean into the big tent that is the Democratic Party, Voters will come out and we'll have a chance to win. If we don't, I I worry about that, particularly in general elections where, you know, independents may go with Republicans and Republicans will come out because they are now driven by uh, fear and vitriol, which which is a huge motivating factor towards getting to the polls. On the other side of that, uh, joy and authenticity and truth is a motivating factor too. But if we're not engaging in that, then people won't come out. So yes, I am concerned. So I agree with you that we need to have a message that responds to the false lies that are being put out about critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera, and the, and the attempts to censor our history. But don't you think we also need like a positive, hopeful no, we need a vision. Agenda, we need a, a vision. vision. Yes. When you, you were speaking about AOC and, I, and, and types of media uh, communication, it reminds me of that incredible video she put out about how we can address climate change. Did you see that? That animated thing where, yes, you know, solar, solar 
things popped out and all of a sudden it was like, we can do this. You know, we have a vision for the future that makes sense and we yes. can do this. I mean, that's the kind of thing I think we need for education as well. I think a lot of that is in your Green New Deal bill, you know, yes. more money for special ed. That's something that's going to appeal to parents across the board. More yeah. Money, yeah. yeah, more money for class size reduction. That polls incredibly high among Republicans, independents and um, and, and, and Democrats, because they know where the money's going to. They can see it and they believe in that. Uh, more money to, for school repair and upgrades. That's another thing that would ap- appeal across the board. So a lot of the things that you've already included in that bill, I yes. think the things that could be you know, included in a national message yes. to really transform education. And that, and, and been, no, I was going to say that's been my frustration. So as I answered your question, I was talking more nationally, not in my district, because in my district, we're doing that. Like, that's how right, we, right. that's but how we communicate. Something that would be good as a national message. It needs to be a national message. And, and right. I've tried to talk to, uh, and I have talked to CBC, CPC, uh, White House about this, Schumer, Gillibrand, others. Gillibrand's leaning in a bit. And, you know, part of, you know, politics is about constant engagement and conversation. So I'm going to continue to push to have these conversations. But to your point, um, in the district, you know, we, we, we're constantly doing phone banking and other things just to remain engaged and just to, you know, just to get an understanding of what people want and, and so that we could govern accordingly. And when we were doing petitioning, you know, when, when, when people are hesitant to sign the petition or hesitant to support me, the one line that always gets them is like, oh, yeah, he used to be a middle school principal. And they're like, oh, OK, I'll sign like immediately. So it shows you how important education is for people. And and we're just not, you know, what what we have done historically is, you know, we got the unions on our side, you know, teachers unions. We're good in education. Well, no, that wasn't enough. It gave us no child left behind. Now we need to create a new vision. And that's where the Green New Deal comes in and communication messaging comes in. I think, you know, the COVID crisis has also led to an opportunity because, no parent is happy with what happened over the last two years. All parents are worried about where their kids are um, right now and really want, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the need to transform education, right? And imagine a new new kind of education. And I think the issue is just, you know, is just waiting to be grasped by uh, progressive leaders like you, you've already done it, but there needs to be a national message there needs for to the be midterm more. where they like just May- talk like about May- that. Mayor-, Mayor Adams needs to step up and grasp this. If he wants to remain, if he wants to continue to have mayoral control, Mayor Adams must step up and grasp this new vision for education that's rooted in research and rooted in transformative outcomes for kids. David Banks, as the new school's chancellor, step up, grasp onto this vision for public education. It will be transformative for kids. Betty Rosa, who's already there, let's support her and let her continue to lead on this issue. Betty Rosa, just for our listeners, is the state education commissioner. Lester Young, who's the uh, chancellor of the Board of Regents. But it's them at those, Governor Hochul. 
This is the vision for public education that we need. President Biden, if President Biden, if 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 Dr. Jill Biden was allowed to run education in our country, we would be so much further along. This is not the time for status quo. This is not the time for half measures. We got to double and triple down on doing what's right for our kids in our schools. Because guess what, Laney, you know this: our kids are suffering. And because they're suffering, they're harming themselves and they're harming others. That We see a rise in suicide ideation. We see a rise in youth violence. It's directly related to us not meeting the needs in our schools. And that's what we're all talking about. Now, instead of rising to the occasion, um, our mayor actually wants to cut the budget for schools by $375 million which, as I mentioned in the intro, would cause class sizes to sharply increase. And that's the last thing our kids need right now. They're still suffering both academically and emotionally from the last two years. They need that strong connection with their teacher to, to, to actually increase their class sizes now. Right now would be a huge tragedy in, in my mind, and I think in the minds of a lot of other parents and teachers and advocates as well. Now, I want to get to something else, which um, is incredibly interesting, which is your proposal to change something which happened 20 years ago with No Child Left Behind and has continued with ESSA, which is the federal mandate for annual standardized testing in every grade, three through eight, and and uh, and in, once in high school as well, in English and math. And um, you have a proposal to change that. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So right now it's a draft, so it's not final. And we are continuously engaging uh, community leaders and others around the draft because we really want their feedback. We've been doing annual standardized testing for over 20 years. The goal was a 100% literacy rate and to close the Black, White, uh, Latino, Asian achievement gap, right? Neither one of those things has manifested. It has not worked. No. It has not worked. So we have failed at reaching a 100% literacy rate, and we have failed at closing the achievement gap. So that those are two things. The other thing is research has shown that research, peer-reviewed research has shown that it doesn't work, and it's shown there are other ways, better ways that we can approach education that really – Uh, provides resources and supports to the kids who need them, like lowering class size, early childhood education, bringing back the arts, educating the whole child, et cetera, et cetera. So because it hasn't worked and because we have research on our side, we have data research and a narrative on our side, it's time to end annual standardized testing. So we're drafting a bill that would give states the choice to implement a form of matrix sampling testing like NAEP does, or to implement grade span testing, which would be once in in elementary, once in middle, once in high school, you're done. Um, so that's what we're that's what we're drafting a proposal to end that. In addition, we're also as part of this proposal, we want to decouple Title I funding from the administration of annual standardized testing. Those things should have never been coupled in the first place. If children are growing up in poor communities, their school needs additional funding. Period. Whether you administer an annual test or not should not determine the funding you receive. Um, So we know we need a a revolution in public education. Ending annual standardized testing is part of that revolution. And then we need a paradigm shift towards focusing on the things that matter. Early childhood education, lowering class size, the arts, mental health, attendance, the community school model, 
Green New Deal for public schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't tell you, Laney, how excited people across the country are by this proposal. And as you said before, it's not just progressives. It's not just opt-out parents. And by the way, opt-out parents were Democrat and Republican together. It's Democrats, Republicans, everyone's excited about this because they know we're over-testing our kids. And then we open, then we release the shackles for states and districts to really meet the needs of the kids that they're serving. So very excited about it. And we think it's going to get a lot of support. So we're in, you know, kind of in the middle of testing season in in New York City public schools and in the state. I think the ELA and the math tests are finished, but now we're going to go into the science test. And and there's an incredible amount of test prep that goes on, an incredible amount of interim assessments, whether that's iReady or the MAP tests that are now given three times a year in New York City public schools. I think that was didn't happen when you were a principal plus a lot of other tests um, for ELL students, um, special ed students. If you look at the schedule, it's hours and hours worth of testing, um, either test prep testing, interim testing, or or regular standardized testing. And teachers themselves are bewailing that they get no important information from these tests. It takes tremendous time out of the day where kids could be learning And for a lot of kids, it's extremely stressful. So one of the things that the state education department did when we complained that the tests were too long, you know, hours and hours worth over two or three days for young kids is they made the tests untimed, which had made, has made it even worse because some kids spend up to six hours a day doing the state ed test just to try to get them, you know, kids who are like compulsive perfectionists. Or, you know, and it's really, it's having a hugely negative impact on our kids have made Kids have made themselves sick yeah. testing for an entire day trying to get the best score they can get. Literally vomiting in classrooms and in schools, crying tears of, of misery, um, hiding. I've had kids leave the testing room and go hide in the staircase so they wouldn't have to deal with the test for that long period of time. It's It's been crazy. And the high stakes that are attached to our state tests, which you kind of mentioned peripherally when you were talking about Title I schools. Um, Do you want to explain how Title I schools are specifically potentially penalized by these tests in a way that other schools are not? Yes. So the the overuse and misuse um, and abuse of standardized testing over the last 20 years has been uh, weaponized against teachers and students and schools. So they were used, quite frankly, not to provide supports. They were used to identify teachers as bad teachers and get them fired and or replaced by other teachers and identify schools as bad schools to close schools. And what would come in this place? Charter schools will come in its place. And charter schools are built around market-based ideology where investors can literally make a profit from investing in charter schools. So Title I schools were the target area of these charter schools because Title I schools historically have, have low performance. But the reason why they have low performance is, is, is a couple of reasons. One, the, the, the standardized, the history of standardized testing connected to a eugenics model. That's a whole nother conversation. But then the other piece is Title I schools are more likely to be in communities of poverty and, and poverty and, and parent education is as much of a predictor of, of test results 
as the education, more of a predictor of test results than the education inside the schools. And research has shown this. So, you know, Title I schools have been ground zero in the fight, uh, in, in the implementation of the standardized testing, in the fight for public education and teachers' unions, but, and, but, but also a fight in terms of keeping the proliferation of charter schools from coming into communities, which then leads to gentrification, which then leads to communities of color being displaced and the whole demographic changing within a, within a particular neighborhood. And many of the charter schools who get the best test scores also have incredibly abusive. The best kids. <laughs> they push out the kids and the kids who stay are subjected to incredibly restrictive and I think abusive disciplinary practices, which sort of treat them like they're little robots. And I did it. I did it. I did it. Uh, my, my residency was done in a charter school before we opened CASA. The, the kids were not allowed to speak during breakfast. They were not allowed to speak during hallway transitions. And part of my job in the morning was to keep seventh graders silent in the auditorium during morning meeting time. I went to diverse schools my whole life. I went to schools in District 2. White kids are never treated this way. These are black and brown kids, white staff, white CEOs. That's slavery. That's not education. So that, that, that's what I experienced at one of the celebrated charter schools in the city because they get high test scores. And again, because nine times out of 10, the parents, you know, have, have a, at least a high school diploma, have the efficacy to go through the charter process. So the kid is coming from a different home as compared to some of the kids who are forced to remain in public schools. So it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been a Travis sham ockery from the very beginning. I don't know whether you're involved at all in this issue of the federal charter school funding um, that NPE and other groups have gotten involved in because the yes, Fed have yes. new regs to try to tighten their grants to charter schools to make sure that it's that that not hundreds of millions of dollars are going to either the most abusive charter schools or the ones um, which we found sometimes take the money and then never open or close very quickly afterwards. And hundreds of millions of dollars have been wasted by the federal government in their grants to new and expanding charter schools. And some of the most abusive charter schools that we have, including Success Academy, which I think has gotten more than $100 million from the federal government, even though they've been found by both state courts and federal courts to abuse the rights of children with special needs. So um, that's the whole- no, we have been involved in that. Um, we look to decrease that amount of funding and also look to stop some of that funding from going to for-profit charter schools. But you you make a point. I just want to make a quick distinction. So people need to understand there are some charter schools that, are, that have been funded over the years uh, in the neighborhood of hundreds of millions of dollars by the federal government who have never opened at all or open briefly and then closed. So it's a for-profit hustle and scheme similar to Trump University. Um, some of these schools have been online. Some of these schools have been in person, never opened and received hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. Um, I also want to make a distinction because there are some uh, small sort of mom and pop charters that do a lot for like children with special needs. They teach African-American history and they have to do it because the school district would not do it. So those charters are different than the monopoly charters that we're talking about, like KIPP, Achievement First, 
Success Academy, um, Uncommon. Uncommon Schools, and um, and uh, what's the other one? Oh, man, Orange Hats. I'm forgetting the and other democracy one. Democracy Prep. Democracy Prep. Yeah, I used to call them the Evil Empire, the, fi- the Evil you Empire. You heard about how their founder, Seth Andrews, was caught um, embezzling millions of dollars. But, but, but Seth, and that, but that's exactly the point. It's, mar- it's a market-based approach to education, and what you're going to have is corruption. Testing is a part of the market-based approach as well, and what you have is corruption. People don't care about student achievement. They care about profit. I remember a few years ago, uh, they listed the charter school salaries in the Daily News, like the CEO salaries. I mean, are you kidding me? Some CEOs and charters make half a million dollars or more. I'm sure even Moskowitz probably makes uh, three quarters of a million dollars at least right now. More than that now. I think she makes $900,000 a year. Right? No school superintendent uh, in, the, in, in, in New York City public schools make that much money, and, they, and, they, and they, they will run circles around Eva Moskowitz in terms of how quality they are as educators. They serve the toughest kids in the toughest circumstances and get great. They make miracles every day with all the odds stacked against them, and, they, and some teachers in other districts make more than them. There's actually one chain of charter schools that I like, which is the, the Icon chain, which is yes. in the- because they, they, do, they do the little class size stuff. Yes, yeah. they cap class sizes at 18 for every grade K through 8. And they do not impose the same kind of t- abusive disciplinary processes. They really yeah. let children breathe, be children, express their ideas, their curiosity, their yeah. energy, and their gumption. And, um, you know, do not try to turn them into little robots. So, That's right. Uh, and they mostly have their own buildings, which they do not require a, a DOE to pay for as well. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, so uh, a couple more things. Um, I know that we're in a weird situation with redistricting. Um, you were already redistricted once, I guess, by the state legislature. Now it looks like you're headed towards another redistricting. <laughs> it's it's all in the air and it's it must be it's very confusing to me and I'm I'm wondering you know can you share what you're going through with this uh right now it's wait and see you know I have no idea where things are going to land um the independent commission had a map uh which you know included feedback from uh stakeholders and constituents and communities of what's the term um uh, communities of interest. So they, they got the feedback from testimony online and in person, created a map. The state, for whatever reason, didn't accept that map, drew its own map. Two-thirds of this legislature voted in support of the map. Um, and then it was challenged in court, and, then, and and it was thrown out. And then it was appealed three times, I think, and all the appeals were thrown out. So for me, it's about communities of interest and in making sure their voices are driving this process. And at every step of the process from the beginning, when they testified and the map was drawn, they were ignored. And then through the legislature, which is voted on by the people, that was also ignored as well. And how we got to a place for with a special master uh, doing it is kind of, you know, we'll see where it lands. We're hoping that he or she takes the communities of interest into account and draws a map that's that's equitable. Um, but for me, it's it's just like you wait and see because you don't know where you're running or you, you really don't know what's happening in terms of your campaign. So I just try to stay focused on doing the job. You know what I'm saying? Like we, 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 we have a district right now. We have constituents right now. If we do our job effectively, 
all the other stuff should take care of itself. So that's just that's just kind of our focus. And meanwhile, the primaries move to August in any case. Yes. Yeah, we think so. Oh. Yep, that's going to be. You have a little bit more time to adjust, hopefully, to whatever the boundaries of your district are. That's right. Exactly. Um, we just have a couple more minutes before we have to uh, log off, but um, I wanted you to talk about your Babies Over Billionaires Act just in the next two yes. minutes or so, because I love that name, first of all, Babies oh, Over Billionaires. <laughs> and uh, I think that that's something the Democrats should be pushing nationally. Can you tell us a little bit about what that bill would do? Yes. Yeah, so um, we're, we're, we're the only developed nation without uh, paid leave. We still don't have universal child care. We still don't have universal pre-K. We still have class sizes that are too large. We still don't invest in our public schools the way we should. We don't invest in mental health. Um, and our babies, our young people are, are, are not investing in a way that we need to invest in them to, to have a healthy society and democracy. So our bill um, taxes unrealized capital, the unrealized capital gains of the wealthiest among us at 40%, which is what the, the president called for. So anyone with a net worth of $100 million or more will be subjected to this tax. And with that tax, we can raise a trillion dollars over 10 years and invest it in all the areas that I just mentioned, including uh, making the child tax credit permanent so that we can get the majority of children out of poverty. So it's a, it's a win, 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 win. Um, and and we, we got a lot of support, really excited about it. And the name is because if we don't invest in our babies, in our children, we will continue to have a democracy and society that is more hurtful to the majority of people than it is helpful. We have one one in one in four, one in one in five, one in four children living in poverty in this country, I believe. One in four, one in five. We have to change that and we have to make the wealthy pay their fair share. And this is one example of how they would do that. I think billionaires are doing quite well on their own. It's our the babies that really need our help. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So I want to thank you so much for being with us today and, and hearing about your, your work as a congressman, your experiences, and your focus on our public schools, which is so important. As you said, it doesn't get talked about enough in Congress. I'll put links um, to your website in the resources section, also how to subscribe to your newsletter, but probably the best way to follow you and all your busy activities is to follow you on Twitter, no? Yes, Twitter, uh, at Jamal Bowman NY, um, that's J-A-M-A-A-L, but also follow me a bit more on Instagram and even Facebook because Twitter has become like a real cesspool and I, I try to stay away from there because it's, it's not healthy. So Instagram is a bit more engaging and fun. And oh, follow us on TikTok too. I think it's at Rep Bowman. Um, you know, that's the way we're engaging young people, which by the way, Lainey, young people are right there with us in terms of everything we want in politics. So we need to lean into them. I need to get my own TikTok account. I don't. I know that I'm I'm behind the behind the the way and and not doing that. But uh, I want to thank you again. You're doing such terrific work. I hope you can come back soon, and we don't have to wait another two two and a half years or whatever. Um, and um, thanks, thanks for everything, Jamal. Of course. Talk soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. So our show Talk Out of School is available as a podcast. If you missed any part of the live version or want to listen to it again and share it with your friends, if you're here through Apple, please leave a review. 
Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or as a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. We need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that does not run any ads. There's no other show on the air also that really delves into the issues and controversies affecting our public schools in New York City, like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI at 212-209-2950. You can also easily donate online at WBAI.org. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study them hard hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone The guy behind you won't leave you alone